Water. Water would then be <coughs> rivers, the rivers more specific than the waters. Then he speaks of walking through the fire and not being burned by the which is more specific than the fire. So he kind of goes from the general to the specific both times. And in, in every case, he's with them and they aren't hurt by that. Don't ever think you won't go through troubles. Don't ever think if I'm faithful to God, if God's with me, then you know he'll exempt me from any problems. He'll be with you in the problems. He'll keep them from destroying you. He might not keep them from killing you. After all, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not presume that God would necessarily keep them alive. As I recall, he didn't keep Stephen alive, nor James, the brother of John, nor his own son. But were they hurt by their persecutors? Not really. You know, I mean, Stephen looked up and he saw the Lord. He'd be right there with him, sure. You know, so, God will be with us. He won't exempt us, but he'll be with us. And that makes all the difference. Yes? I think it's interesting how, what our perspective is towards the discipline of the Lord and how, you know, we should, we should desire it. Yes. You know, because it comes to his children. And we need it. When we're making bad decisions or when our hearts are right, we need the Lord to give us something that doesn't burn us, but makes us see the fire. No doubt. Caleb. Yeah, I, think, I think this is this is a lot of our problems sometimes. That, you know, we want the promised land, we want what God has to offer us, but we don't want to endure the wilderness to get there. You know, we don't want to have to endure any suffering, and, and because of that, we fall short. Yeah, the crown without the cross. Uh, this is the problem that so many skeptics in the world have is uh, the discipline of God and the justice of God. Why does he let his own people go through all these things, reading through the Old Testament, reading how, uh, how he allows them to go through all these, uh, these waters, this fire, and, and, and such like that. And it's, it's a question that they have, and uh, from the outside perspective, yes, it seems like a legitimate case and it seems like it, but what they don't realize is that it is what God's presence is able to do. And it's, it's just something that people out in the world struggle with as well. And it's definitely something they need to say. Yes, JP. One of the things that we also have numerous examples in the Bible that tell us to endure to consider blessings to face trials, to take on the burdens of Christ. Because that's what makes us Okay, so we'll that's what makes us a good steward of the story. Amen. To ensure that we're going to receive blessings by various thoughts. Amen. Other thoughts? Okay, he says in verse 3, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, and look at what God did. I've given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you're precious in my sight, since you're honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. God was willing to pay any price to ransom his people. He was practically ready to sacrifice a whole continent to rescue his people. I'll, I'll give anything. No price is too high. As God... God rescues his people from their own sin and wickedness and the own, their own captivity and destruction they brought on themselves. It's amazing. And God, you know, it, it's like we, we incurred this unbelievable debt and God sold off all his assets to pay our debt and to free us from debtor's prison. You know, that's amazing. What his death? What his fault? He didn't do that. We did. But he came and paid the price. That's what he's doing for his people. Do not fear for I'm with you. And I'll bring you from everywhere and bring you back to me. I think this includes a lot more than the Babylonian captivity. I think in much of this. Don't just think about coming back under Cyrus. Think about coming to the Lord from everywhere as he brings people out of the prison of 
and he redeems them from their own foolish and wicked ways. Everyone, he says in verse 7, who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. That is an interesting conjunction of three key verbs. Created, formed, and made. You know where else you find those three verbs frequently repeated in conjunction? Genesis 1 and 2. It's exactly what God did at the beginning and he's doing it again with his people. The very verbs describing the creation of the world are describing God's creating his people, a people for his glory in spite of where they've been and what they've done. Comments and questions? <clears throat> yes, Blake. Who does verse 6 talk about when it says to the north and the south? Um, I think just wherever they are. I mean, sometimes the north would be Babel and the south would be Egypt, but I'm not sure if we need to think in that specific terms. Well, because of five dimensions, the east and the west. Exactly. <laughs> and that was the sea of the desert. <laughs> Other comments, questions? Yes, um, so when he's talking about uh, giving Egypt as a some Ethiopia and Sibat, that's just figurative, there's no significance? That's a debatable point. Some people take that as God expanding Cyrus's empire to include those countries in exchange for him sending God's people back to Israel. I'm just not persuaded that the primary point here is Cyrus anyway. So maybe there's a foreshadowing in that, but I think primarily it's the idea God will liquidate any asset he has to, to redeem us. I mean, you know, one of the things, you know, on one of my several soapboxes, but one of the things that is so cool about studying passages we don't study very often, is you see new figures and new ways of expressing these great truths of the grace and redemption of God. I, I think it just, you know, we just cheat ourselves so much when we don't really put forth the effort, it takes some effort here, to study and learn what these things are saying. And, uh, you know, while I'm at it, I, I will make a comment that's crossing my mind, that, you know, it's very... It's very encouraging to me that you guys want to study this long. That is, that is tremendous. That's exactly the way we are. We ought to love God and love his word. And it amazes me, and some, somebody needs to take this to a certain people who might be in a position of influence, but it amazes me how so often we have been sold this idea that if you really want to be able to maintain attractive interest, young people, it's got to be with all kinds of fun and games and a lot of lighthearted merriment. That is not true. Young people are no different than older people or any other people. What we need and what we what we desire is the Word. We want the Lord. And, you know, I, I, I go back and forth on this. I use one to uh, encourage the other. But there's several places in Brazil where we do this kind of thing, where we do studies for hours. And I'll tell them about you guys as kind of a motivation for them to realize they're not the only people who are willing to study for hours on end. And uh, I'll tell you about them so that you'll realize you're not the only one. And uh, I've got to be you. you know, love is work. And it's just, it's, it's so upbuilding. And the thing I'd say is, you come from everywhere. Go back home and do the same thing. Now, don't expect that people who not eat much yet are going to have a great taste for it yet. So you have to work with them, encourage them, 
sit down with him and start studying with him even one-on-one -on -one and helping him see this is fun, this is exciting, this is what we need, this builds us up. And then over time, you can get more and more people involved in what really matters. And so I really appreciate you guys. It's just really, uh, you know, it spurs me on and uh, just really encourages me. So. I, mean, I think it's what Solomon was talking about, that, that hole that's inside of everybody that, that they're trying to fill it with everything. I mean, everybody in the world has this hole in their heart. And they're trying to fill it with everything worldly, whatever they think might make it happen. I mean, this is our spiritual food. And that I, I seriously, sincerely believe everybody in the world could come to love something like this. A true, in-depth study of the Word of God. And it's not just Christians who, people who have already done it that, that would enjoy it. It's everybody. There, there's non-Christians who are hungry. You'll feed them. Now, I realize plenty are not, and they continue to refuse to recognize. But there are others who want the Word of God. That's exactly what we've got to, to keep pushing ourselves. Learn this stuff. You know, meditate on it. Grow in it. This is, this is the food that will build us up. And so it's just uh, really exciting to be able to share that together. Thank you. Um, but, uh, verses 8 to 13. Bring up the people who are born, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together in order that the people may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, declared the Lord, and my servant, whom I have chosen, in order that you may know and believe me. And I understand that I understand that I speak. Before me there was no God born, and there will be none after me. Through thirteen. I even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior beside me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses.
mind of deaf people be his witnesses? Well, I'll tell you how they were his witnesses, I, I believe. Their very existence as a people was a monument to God's power. Their very history testified that the Lord was God because they sure weren't able to do this on their own. Look at how incompetent they are. And so I think they are witnesses by, by what they are and who they are, just like we are. We are the witnesses of God's divine delivering power. You remember Ephesians 3? That, that God displays to uh, the principalities and powers his, his infinite wisdom by his people. Not because we're so good, but because we are the product of his redemptive handiwork. And the fact that we are such a mess and he still managed to redeem us in spite of that is in some ways a greater tribute to his power, wisdom, and love. And so I think, you know, they are, are by their very presence, as God's people, they are witnesses of God's work. And so God ends up winning the case. After all, there's nobody else around anyway. You know, he says in the end of 10, before me there was no God form, there will be none after me. I'm the Lord, there's no Savior beside me. You know, it's I who declare, say, who claim there's no strange God among you. You know, there's nobody else. God is supreme, he is absolute. He says, there's none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it? I mean, God is alone. How can you ever, ever think that there could be any rivals to God after you read Isaiah? I mean, God is saying, it is only me. Don't you ever think that there are other ways to eternal life besides God? I don't care how sophisticated and cultured and politically correct it is. He is uniquely God. And there is no one besides him. That is his case. And he's able to defend it with a bunch of blind and deaf witnesses, no less. Comments and questions? Yeah, Chuck. Um, you think you can make reference to the previous chapter in verse 18. Well, I think it is the same witnesses. I think these are the blind and deaf ones that you know are his people that are you know just not caring to look and to hear but I think they are the same people yeah in verse 9 it says who can who among them can declare this and proclaims us the former things who is saying there about how he's saying that all nations are gathered together together who else could say that or what is he saying? No, I think he's saying who else can uh, cite predictions that they've been able to fulfill what other gods can it cast any track record of being able to do anything? <laughs> Great. Um, I don't know, I would be totally off on this, but I, I don't know, when I was looking at it, it seemed like it was a possibility that the blind uh, and deaf people that he was talking about in verse 8 were used to people that he was convincing by his evidence. You know, you know, saying, I know you're blind, but you have eyes. Here, listen to this. You know, see this. And even trying to make that case to them, not necessarily uh, just using them uh, for his witness. Okay. Maybe so. Yeah. I have another question. Um, when first David says bring out those um, people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and, and those were deaf, even though they have ears, does that mean they're like they're capable of hearing, or why are they? I think so. So they're purposefully closing their eyes and ears and saying so. they're listening. They've got the equipment. They've got the available data. They don't choose to see it for here. That's what I mean. Look. I remember my dad talking about his grandfather sometimes had what he would call selective deafness. 
to where if somebody would come over to his house and didn't want to talk to all of a sudden he couldn't hear very well at all, but once that person left, he can hear fine. And that's, that's really what we do a lot of times, just like the like children of Israel are doing here, we see in the Bible what we want to do, and for some reason or another we can't seem to see the things that we don't want to do, and I think that's a lot of how the God's people have become so diverse and divided today. And it's our challenge not to be like that. And that's exactly what God told us to be like. Robert Paul said this. Good point. Definitely. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? So when we have these attitudes of not listening and not wanting to, to hear God and, and look at what he, what he said um, and what he has for us, um, even with those attitudes, we're still God's people. Um, I think mm, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he eventually makes a separation. Some of them get burned in the pot, and some of them get preserved. He's the judge. Other thoughts? All right, uh, 14 to 21. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I have sent to Babylon, and will bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who brings forth the chariot and the horse and the army and the mighty man. They will lie down together and not rise again. They have been quenched and extinguished like the wicked. Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, and the beasts of the field will glorify me, and the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given water in the wilderness, the rivers in the desert to drink to my chosen people, and the people who I form for myself will declare my praise. So, God, in spite of everything, is their redeemer. And now he begins to focus on this redemption that he's going to bring for them. He says, for your sake I have sent to Babylon and will bring them all down as fugitives. Even the Chaldeans into the ships in which they rejoice. Now, he, he's, at least in, in this passage, thinking about their physical deliverance. They had been enslaved to Babylon. But what was God going to do? Well, he was going to take Babylon and make them captives. Make them fugitives. Going to make them captives on ships. I am the Lord. Your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Here's who I am, and I'm going to do something about this. Babylon may be great, I'm greater. And He's the Lord that has done what in 16 and 17? What's He talking about? Yeah, the Exodus. Now, how powerful was Pharaoh? And how insurmountable a barrier was the Red Sea? Pretty good. Yeah. It managed to drown and destroy Pharaoh's army when it came back too. Uh, so that, that's pretty powerful. And yet, look at what God did. He brought down the army of the mighty man. By the way, they've been quenched and extinguished like a wick. You might go back to 42.3. You know, and again, you sort of have, on the one side, Jesus gentle. On the other side, Jesus smashing out Pharaoh and his army. But, that's in the past. What's God going to do now? 
Well, he says, don't call to mind the former things, 18, or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now, I think what he's saying by that is, the new thing he's going to do, it's going to be so great that it will just eclipse the old thing. You know, he's going to do something that goes beyond the exodus. Kind of, it's this idea of uh, what happens to the stars when the sun comes out. What happens to the stars anyhow? Where do they go? They're still there. Well, why can't we see them? The sun is brighter than the stars. And so this new deliverance will be so bright that we remember the old one. Be like the Exodus is just totally, you know, overwhelmed in this greater deliverance. He's going to make a roadway in the desert, and he's going to open the, the way for them to be delivered through the desert. It'll be such a mighty Exodus that the past ones will be forgotten. Now, I really think that even though he starts out with Babylon, that by the time we come to this granddaddy of all exoduses. He's talking about something greater than leaving Babylon. I mean, arguably, I mean, I don't know. If you'd say the deliverance from Babylon was, was so much greater than the deliverance from Egypt that you never remember the exodus. I think he's talking about the greater deliverance that, that Babylon only foreshadowed. That's the deliverance from sin in Christ. That's the great redemption we have. And that redemption does just overshadow enormously the exodus. I mean, this is so much greater and so much better. And so God is going to deliver us through the wilderness. He's going to give to drink to his chosen people. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. So when we have been astoundingly delivered by God's power and grace, what should we do? Declare His praise. And shame on us if we don't. You know, I mean, I don't know what kind of analogy you know, would be, would be worthwhile for us. But, but, I mean, you know, on your way home, God forbid, you have a terrible car wreck. And, and the car is in flames. And somebody pulls you out of that car and saves your life. Even though in the process, that person's engulfed in flame and let flames and loses theirs. I mean, what would you think about that? Would you, would you tell anybody? Would you, would you want to? Feel indebted to the family? Would you would you want to have a you know memorial, a plaque, a celebration, a commemoration, or something? I mean, and, and that's just nothing in comparison. I mean, you know, when you think about the great thing God has done, wow, no wonder he says, the people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. Of course they will. How could they not? Comments? I think, uh, I think this truly shows how great the bonds of sin really are. How much greater they are than any bonds of Egypt, any bonds of sin, any bonds of battle. Right there, they overshadow those so much that that's how great this redemption of our sin truly is. Amen. Okay. Makes me think of why our weekly observance of the death of Christ cannot be a ritual, but rather a, even a life-changing remembrance from week to week. It is just a shame if we take these things lightly and mechanically, as I so often have done, because it's just not right. After all he's done at such an incredible cost, to make it practically meaningless, it's just, it doesn't make sense. You see, in the Lord's Supper, this idea of proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. 
we declare it praise as we partake of his supper and we remember his amazing sacrifice, his amazing deliverance for us. Other thoughts? Yes, please. I don't know, as we look through the Old Testament, like in Deuteronomy, uh, we see that the children of Israel are told over and over again to remember what the Lord has done for them. You know, they, uh, many times they would set up stones or different things to remember what the Lord has done for them. And we say that they forgot, but here, God has done some, something so much greater for us. As we see him here, he's given us redemption from sin. Uh, and we need to make sure that we don't forget like Israel did. Amen. 22 to 28. Yeah, I have not called on me, O Jacob. But you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offering, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me not sweet cane with money nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause, that you may be proved right. Your first forefathers sinned, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary, and I will consign Jacob to the band and Israel to the We come back to reality. What do you see in 22 to 24? Sort of the follow-up to what he's been saying about Christ, and then he says, that despite everything he's done for them, will do for them, and how pathetic it is to do that. Exactly. This is a people formed for, to declare his praise, but they're sure not doing it. They are not really serving God. They're not even doing their, their sacrifices and their offerings for God. As the worship occurred, but it never reached the Lord. You know, it's mechanical, it's empty, it's heartless. They haven't honored him. They've not brought anything to him. The only thing they burned him with is what? Their sins and iniquities. Pathetic. I mean, the truth is, for a people who ought to be absolutely committed to praising him, they've just been committed to doing what they wanted to and offering God some sort of a pittance to try to shut him up. How would you feel if you were God? In view of this. Betray. Betray? Aggravated. Yeah, aggravated would be too weak, wouldn't it? <laughs> Hurt. Hurt. Infuriated. Man. I mean, wow. You do all this for this people. They spit your face. You make a mock. Of worship you because they don't live it. They they don't do it from their heart. They do whatever they can buy. They betray you for a dozen other gods. I mean, what do you do as a husband? You do all this for your wife, and she goes out with a dozen men in town. Hardly stays at home. I mean, you know, guys, you're gonna be complacent about that. Yeah, you know, she just kind of likes to shop around. <laughs> and you got to keep bringing her gifts and roses and all that kind of stuff. Verse 25. So what does God decide to do? Wow. That is not what I would have chosen to do. Why? For his sake. Yeah. There sure wasn't anything in them to bear forgiveness. That's a sure bet. 
But God, by His incredible mercy, grace, love, there's no way to even... I, I, that's inexplicable. It's unbelievable. You know, he, he says, I, I, I your transgressions. I will not remember your sins. Now, the rest of this is a little difficult, but I'll tell you what I think this is. And if there's anything that ought to make our blood boil, it's this. He says in the next verse, in 26, put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause that you may be proved right. I think Israel rejects 25. They're offered pardon by God, but I think they act like they don't need it. I think they, 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 they you know, oh, you don't want to forget them. We, we, we want to do it ourselves. We don't need any, we don't need any grace. Don't give us mercy. We, we can have it. He said, all right. That's the way you want to then prove your case. <coughs> Show how you're innocent. But I think sometimes the offer of grace is too humiliating for prideful people like us. We don't want grace because we want to feel like we deserve what we get. We want to earn it. So he says, okay, you think you don't need it? <laughs> then prove your case. But he says, I'll tell you what. Your first forefather sinned, and your spokesman have transgressed against me. Your first forefather sin. That could be the uh, subject of endless debate. Uh, who was the first forefather that said more than likely? I don't think so. I don't think so. Third choice. I don't think so. Fourth choice. I think Jacob. I think the, the, their first forefather. It goes back to Israel. It goes back to Jacob. Abraham would be a possibility, but I don't know that we see Abraham so much as a sinner like we would Jacob. Adam, I think that's not Israel. That's the first four of the human race. So I, I personally prefer Jacob. That may pull out the difference. But I think he's going back and saying the, 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 the very man who gave you his name was a sinner. Man, was he ever. And your spokesman, your prophets, they're a bunch of sinners. I mean, what are you going to say if you want to prove your case? So he said, I'll pollute the princes of the sanctuary. I'll consign Jacob to the man and Israel to revive. They're, they're going to just become a curse. It's amazing how anybody can refuse God's unreasonable grace when they need it so badly. Isn't that exactly where many people are at today? God's begging us to be reconciled to him. I mean, that, that, that text in 2 Corinthians 5 and 6 is just such an amazing thing. You know, you, you've got a really good job that you're really not qualified for. It's really paying you well and you've got a wonderful boss. And you do something really mean to him. Really offensive. It's really stupid. really hurts him. And and I mean, you know, you need to you need to apologize, and you need to offer some kind of reparation. But what happens? He comes and begs you to receive the reconciliation. You know, you 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 maybe you you ran into his car, so he pays the price to get it fixed, and he, and he asks you. To be able to restore the relationship. Because he's paid the price. You weren't speaking to him because you ran into his car. <laughs> it's like, why something's wrong with this picture? You know, how in the world would, would the offended party be the one to pay the price and seek the reconciliation? But worse, when it comes and seeks it, we won't accept it. He's offered forgiveness. He's paid the price. 
There, there's no understanding of it. It's purely grace. It's so generous. It's so amazing. Isn't people like, I don't want it. No, don't, don't give me that. I don't think I'm giving you grace. I don't think I'm wrong. Wow. That's what it looks like to me in this section, even though it's a little bit more difficult to follow the train of thought. Comments and thoughts? The transition between 25 and 26 says, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Yes. You know, he's saying, you know, I, I'm going to forget about all these sins, but I want you to remember me. You know, remember the good that I've done to you, and I'll forget the bad that you've done to me. You know. Yeah. Or maybe put me in remembrance. Remind me of why you don't need this. Like you're saying. It's a tough, tough section. Check it. When I look at um, especially the last part of verse 24, I'm thinking about how I guess a lot of times we have this misconception of sin and of the Lord, how He forgives our sin. I think sometimes and how He takes how much it hurts our God to see us, how much it hurts Him when we sin against Him. I've heard people say, "Oh, it was just one one curse, or it was only this, that, and the other." And God will forgive that. It's almost like the Lord just kind of wiping it off the slate without a second thought, but this is something that hurts the Lord, that burns. That, I mean, that, that killed his son. That he was put on the cross for. This is not something that he wiped off the slate without a second thought. This hurts on God. And it should hurt us when we, when we see we've messed up. When was the last time we cried for our sin? When was the last time we thought about how much I hurt the Lord when we did something against him and then just wiped it off our shoulders like it was nothing? Good point. Check it. It's such a humbling thought to uh, think about how I know there's people that I regard as great Christians and who I look to for guidance, but even those people are deserving of God's mercy and grace. How He gives us a gift because we are His children. And I don't know, I, I guess I've never really studied this passage, but how they ended, it just it seemed really dumb to me why they would feel like they would need that. Especially seeing how many times they've messed up as, and God is still looking to come back to them. It's amazing. Yes, sir. Good passage that, that I've recently come to love that, to, to really show God's own lament is Jeremiah 4, uh, verses 19. Says, my soul, my soul, I am in anguish, O oh, my heart. My heart is pounding in me. I cannot be silent. Because you have heard, O oh, my soul, the sound of the trumpet and the alarm of war. And then verse 22 um, says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good, they do not know. Yes. Pretty amazing. Experts are doing well. Other thoughts? Yes, yeah. Let's bring up another passage. I think of a Romans 7, when Paul is just having this inward conflict that he's trying to do good, so he's just trying to do good, but his, his body keeps on sinning, and he realizes that he needs God. And one of the verses there says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this, 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 this body of, of sin of death? And he says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And it's only through God that we can, we can attain righteousness. I've tried so many times when I'm struggling with sin, is to be the best I can be. Well, guess what? I can't do it. We need God to help us, to strengthen us, to build us up, to be able to overcome this great, this curl that is sin. We need God's grace. That's his point in that section. Not by the law, you overcome sin, it's by grace. Very good. Right. I think sometimes when we take for granted God's grace and His mercy on us, sometimes I know I personally forget what He did for us to be mercifully let His Son die on the cross for our sins, and He created us humans knowing that we would sin on countless occasions and that we would hurt Him. But um, I think personally I should and I think we all should think about you know what God did for us before we go out and do something that we should do. Amen. 
Jim. Your study was on Genesis 3, 3. You always ask the question, you know, why would God put the tree in the garden if he didn't want the people to eat there? And it just doesn't seem fair that he would tell people to be good and then give them opportunity to do wrong and then they do wrong and then we get punished for it. And um, it's just a little bit challenging thing to think about. But this passage kind of clarifies it because, you know, God made man, he made the tree intending it or knowing that the man would fail, knowing that we would eat the tree. And this verse shows us. It's almost like God doesn't really care that we do it the first time, sort of. What, what really bothers him, like is what's shown here, is the refusal to receive forgiveness. And that's why we can't be aggravated at God forgetting us opportunity to sin because he says, that's okay because I'm going to forgive you and just come back. Yeah, well, God isn't going to force man to do right. There was no choice. Then it would be like manipulating the situation where we couldn't choose to disobey. Uh, and I suspect we'd have been quite frustrated by that as well, as rebellious as we seem to be. Rick? This is kind of like the unforgivable sin, rejecting God's forgiveness. Well, probably not, because he seems to come back and offer it over and over again in spite of that. <laughs> it's amazing. Yes? Um, in verse uh, 23, the Lord points out that he's never asked more than we can give him. His commandments are not burdensome. Yes. That's right. Yes, John. So, so God's forgiving him and not, not going to remember their sins. Um, but are, are the people repentant? I don't think so. I think you can see from 26 to 28, they're rejecting the offer. I thought about why God would leave them on the earth instead of just, you know, in his anger and his fury, tearing them down. And looking at that and uh, what was said about the Garden of Eden, I think that God wants us to choose him. And that's why he leaves other options on the earth, because God knows that we need him. But he, want, he wants us to want to do what he wants us to do, because that's why choose to serve him. That's what he wants. That's the same reason that we pray to him, even though God knows what we need. He wants us to want that communication. Absolutely. Yeah. God is not just wanting words spoken to praise him. He could have programmed us with a little string that every time he pulled it, we said, I love you, God. I love you, God. I love you, God. <laughs> if that's what he wanted to hear, he could have done it that way. It's not what he wants. He wants people who choose to serve him. You're exactly right. 44 verses 1 to 5. 